This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode 7 for June 24th, 2016. My friend Lomax, the sub-librarian. Now, Watson, I want you to do something for me. I am here to be used, Holmes. Well, then, spend the next 24 hours in an intensive study of Chinese pottery. He gave no explanations, and I asked for none. By long experience, I had learned the wisdom of obedience. But when I had left his room, I walked down Baker Street, revolving in my head how on earth I was to carry out so strange an order. Finally, I drove to the London Library in St. James's Square, put the matter to my friend Lomax, the sub-librarian, and departed to my rooms with a goodly volume under my arm. When in doubt, go to the library. That passage from The Adventure of the Illustrious Client is the only reference we get to Watson's friend Lomax, the sub-librarian. But he does have a scion society in his honor, the sub-librarian's scion, which was the first scion that I joined. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes though not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Ravelry as Plexippa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. The sub-librarian Scion is made up of librarians, library employees, and really anybody else who loves libraries and Sherlock Holmes and wants to be a part of it. The group first met at the American Library Association Annual Conference in 1967, making it the oldest professional Sherlockian organization, followed in 1973 by the Practical but Limited Geologists, and in 1974 by the Sir James Saunders Society, or Dermatologists Devoted to Detection. The sub-librarians have been meeting irregularly, of course, at the annual conference ever since. Credit for the idea of the Scion goes to John Bennett Shaw, then a library trustee. Over the last several years, Marsha Pollock, whose BSI investiture is a small but select library, has arranged meetings, but that responsibility has recently passed to George Sheets. Traditionally, toasts are given to Hill Barton, Sherlock Holmes, Baron Gruner, Kitty Winter, and of course, Lomax. I've never written a toast for a Sherlockian event or really any event before. So, naturally, I've volunteered to give the toast to Baron Gruner this year. Today's tea is a Cara McGee blend from Adagio called Anderson. It's a blend of blood orange, Ceylon Sonata, and grapefruit teas. The ingredients listed are Ceylon Sonata, black tea, orange peels, rose hips, hibiscus, natural grapefruit flavor, natural orange flavor, and marigold flowers. The descriptive note is bitter, so bitter. Some seem to be attracted to it, though, for whatever reason. Also, just a bit fruity, best served cold. Since it was 110 degrees Fahrenheit here on Monday, and I'm not exaggerating, I've developed a serious interest in iced tea. I haven't had much success making it myself in the past. It always seemed to come out extra bitter, at work this week, I've been trying cold brewing by putting a tea bag in my 16-ounce tumbler and sitting it in the fridge for a few hours. 
That worked out all right. So I put about a teaspoon and a half in my infuser in the same tumbler this morning, stuck it in the fridge, and now I have refreshing iced tea. The Anderson blend is one for the citrus fans. I added a teaspoon of sugar, which was perfect. It's fruity and still just slightly tart. The only downside to this method is that it requires planning ahead. Now I want another glass, and I don't have any more. copies of the Canon are too many. I know there are people out there like Don Hobbs who collect the Canon in multiple languages and for whom there's probably no such thing as too many editions. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean copies of the novels and stories in English, with or without illustrations, just sort of hanging out on someone's shelves. I have at least four copies in my house. Two of these are annotated editions, both the Bering Gold and Klinger versions. Then I have a three-volume set of the stories as they appeared in the Strand with the illustrations, and my beloved single-volume Doubleday, and copies of the Sherlock Holmes reference library editions of the Apocrypha and the Casebook, because I am apparently collecting that series backwards. I had a two-volume paperback edition, but I sold that to the used bookstore at some point. I may also have a digital edition somewhere in my Barnes & Noble Nook account. I've been thinking about this because my mother-in-law has been watching the BBC Sherlock on PBS, and she asked me about a few things and how they related to the original stories, and she said she was interested in reading the originals, so where should she start? See? It's not just me. I suggested that she start with the adventures, because I think a scandal in Bohemia is a friendlier entry point than Study in Scarlet. But I quickly discovered that despite having multiple copies of the canon on my shelves, I did not have a copy of the adventures suitable for lending her. Both the Doubleday and the Strand facsimile editions had print that was too small for comfort. The Strand copy is really tiny and double columns per page. And the annotated editions are a tad overwhelming for a beginner. It seems I may need a fifth copy, or possibly to check out the large type edition from the library. expected, there's been a lot of crafting going on around here this month. I decided to start off with a project for all the challenges, casting on a sock just after 6pm on May 31st. Why so specific about the timing? I'm participating in several challenges and knit-alongs that follow different schedules, and those schedules follow different time zones. 6 o'clock here on the west coast of the U.S. is 9pm on the east coast, and 3am the following day by the Greenwich clock which meant that the kimono lace socks from Judy Sumner's Knitted Socks East and West, knit out of Sanguine Griffin Cypria in Momos, qualified for the May Sock Down Challenge in the Sock Knitters Anonymous group on Ravelry, and for the June round of the new Nerdopolis tournament, and also for the 10,000 Stitches podcast group Lace Socks Knit Along, which covers May and June. See? All the challenges! I finished the socks in just over a week, which is faster than I usually finish a pair of socks that don't have a deadline, Even if that deadline only involves imaginary internet points, it apparently works. Most knit-alongs and challenges are pretty self-explanatory. Knit a pair of lace socks between this date and that date is pretty clear. Although there have been some sock-down challenge themes that led to much discussion of, does this project qualify? I'm pretty sure there are folks who will curl up in a fetal position on the floor if you ask them, is this orange enough? Nerdopolis is a little more complicated. I compete, 
for those imaginary internet points, as part of Team 221B. Every team has a nerdery, an area of special focus. 221B's focus is naturally Sherlock Holmes, in the canon, pastiches, and various adaptations. Each tournament lasts three months. Each month, six themed events are posted. Participants have from the first of the month to the end of the month, on Greenwich time, to start, finish, and post a project satisfying the theme in up to five of those events. For optional nerd cred, which gives the person an entry into special prize drawings, you can also include a tie-in to your particular nerdery. The topic tie-in used to be required in the old nerd wars, and I've found it a habit I don't particularly want to break. I entered the kimono lace socks in the Nerdopolis University event. This month's theme was Mythbusters, as in the television show. Episode 150 of Mythbusters was called Cold Feet. They showed that, at least sometimes, people's feet actually do get colder when they're faced with a task that scares them. Socks, of course, will keep your feet warm. You see how this works. My nerd cred team shout-out noted that the sock pattern was inspired by traditional Japanese kimonos, as was the dress worn by Rachel McAdams as Irene Adler in the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movie. That is nowhere near the dodgiest tie-in I've ever made, by the way. I'm pretty sure that award still goes to the TARDIS socks, blue, black, and white striped sparkly yarn that I linked to the TARDIS picture shown ever so briefly in The Empty Hearse as part of Anderson's Wall of Theories. Nerdopolis Project 2 was also a pair of socks, also knit in just over a week. These were the Hedera Socks by Cookie A, originally published in Knitty in 2006, and then revised and republished in Cookie's book Knit Sock Love in 2010. I knit them out of Tempted Good Girl in Secret Garden, which is a lovely tonal variegated green. They were submitted in the Nerdception event, where the theme was Around the House. The lace pattern is reminiscent of Crawling Ivy. Those of you with a variable knowledge of botany might already know that Hedera Helix is also known as Common Ivy. And there is ivy growing quite literally around Holmes's house in the movie Mr. Holmes. Not content with leaving that to do double duty as my nerd cred shout-out, I also included a quotation from The Adventure of the Priory School. His window was open, and there is a stout ivy plant leading to the ground. There are actually several references to ivy in the canon, but that seemed like a good one. The socks also qualified for the June Sockdown Challenge, under the theme Break the Rules. One of the rules of Sockdown has long been that you may not knit a pattern you have previously knit. For this month only, you could knit something you knit before. I knit Hedera back in 2008, and the socks wore through a weak spot in the lace pattern in 2010. I'm rather hoping this pair will last longer. I have a third project still to enter in the Area 51 Nerdopolis event. This particular event is for projects started before the round began, so they are unfinished objects, or UFOs. In getting ready for next month's Tour de Fleece, I found one spindle occupied by a bit over an ounce of alpaca fiber I started spinning last August, along with a bit less than an ounce still to spin. I finished the singles, plied them together, and finished them into about 120 yards of sport to DK weight two-ply. I just have to figure out my tie-ins. Interestingly, this yarn does also have a 221B Ravelry group connection because I received the fiber back in swap 6 in the 221B Ravelry group. Next month will be largely about spinning due to the Tour de Fleece. Since I don't have a wheel, I do all of my spinning on drop spindles, so I don't get the yardage that some people do. Well, still being relatively inexperienced, I don't even get as much yardage as some of the other people on Team Spindlers, but it's a fun challenge. 
Last year, I spun and plied about 277 yards altogether in the three weeks of the tour. This year, I'll be traveling the first couple days, but spindles are very portable. Part of the fun of Tour de Fleece is that you can join as many teams as you think you can handle, as long as those teams don't have rules about how many teams you can join. So I will be on Team Spindlers and Team 221B and a team for my local spinning guild and possibly another one. We'll see. The email newsletter Shelf Awareness recently included a bit about the Wells and Wong series of middle-grade mystery novels by Robin Stevens. I've been keeping an eye out for these, published in the UK a couple of years ago. It appears that part of the reason I've had trouble finding them is that in their US publication through Simon & Schuster, the titles have been changed. I have some feelings on this subject. It really, really bothers me. The example that immediately springs to mind is the first Harry Potter book, Folks in the UK and Commonwealth know this book as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In the US, it became Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, because that was supposed to be more appealing to American kids. But here's the thing. The Philosopher's Stone is an actual legend. It was so important in alchemy that Isaac Newton wrote down a way to make Suffolk Mercury, a key ingredient in making the Philosopher's Stone. There's a link in the show notes to a CNN article about the finding of the manuscript. Anyway, the Philosopher's Stone something that was well-known and sought after for years and years. The Sorcerer's Stone? Not so much. Like I said, I have some feelings. Back to the Wells and Wong books. In their original publication, the first two books are called Murder Most Unladylike and Arsenic for Tea. In their new American editions, they're called Murder is Bad Manners and Poison is Not Polite. Okay, points for parallelism in the titles, but I'm already a little apprehensive about what I'm going to find behind the cover. Goodreads reviews suggest that I'm going to find my other pet peeve in imported books, excessive Americanization. In The Sorcerer's Stone, the Weasley kids call their mother Mom. No, that's just wrong. It's so wrong, in fact, that in later books, Scholastic seems to have wised up, and Mrs. Weasley rightly becomes Mum to her children. My daughter has recently finished reading my copy of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, by the way. I'm on the holds list for the ebook version of Murder is Bad Manners from my library. So I'll let you know what I think once I've read it. The series is set in the 1930s at a girls' boarding school called Deep Dean. The name, spelled differently, is also the name of the school young Sherlock Holmes attends in Andrew Lane's series of books. And if you're still trying to puzzle out why that name sounds familiar, you might want to reread Norwood Builder. The setting should make an interesting comparison to F.C. Shaw's Sherlock Academy. I mentioned Sherlock Academy in the last episode, when I was about halfway through the book. I finished it, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's chock-full of fun nods to the Holmes canon, and features quirky characters who are enjoyable in their own right. 11-year-old Raleigh and his best friend Cecily both receive invitations to the very exclusive and very secret Sherlock Academy of Fine Sleuths. They begin their education expecting to learn all the things fine detectives need to know, but, of course, they encounter mystery after mystery along the way. This is a sweet read for middle graders, That's about ages 8 to 11 for those who don't live and breathe book jargon. The ending leaves readers eager for the next book in the series. I have to compare it to the Amanda Lester series, which also features a young person summoned to a mysterious and secret academy for detectives. The two series are very different and will probably appeal to different audiences. A few obvious differences. The Amanda Lester series features a present-day American female protagonist who wants nothing at all to do with Sherlock Holmes, 
but is forced into attending this school in the Lake District where she is isolated from everyone she knew back in California. Sherlock Academy features a boy in the 1930s who absolutely idolizes Sherlock Holmes and is thrilled to be invited to attend a school in London with his best friend. A more subtle difference is that the Amanda Lester series skews slightly older than Sherlock Academy. Especially since the introduction of some romantic entanglements, Amanda Lester will likely appeal to middle school audiences, that's ages 11 to 14 or so, while Sherlock Academy is solidly aimed at the younger group. That younger audience is also less apt to be distracted by a few anachronisms that kind of snagged my attention when reading. And Amanda Lester will probably also attract more girls than boys because that's just the way things are. At the other end of the reader spectrum, I've just finished reading Watson and Holmes, A Study in Black. This is a present-day adaptation of the Holmes stories set in Harlem. Rather than Victorian British gentlemen, we've got modern African-American men. Watson is an Afghanistan vet now working as an emergency room intern and separated from his wife, Marie. We first meet him during his shift in the wee hours of the morning, trying to save the life of a baby abandoned in a dumpster. His next patient is a young man who's been seriously beaten and who has been followed to the hospital by a P.I., whose business card gives his name as S. Holmes. Watson is immediately drawn into Holmes' world, with the two well on their way to the fast friendship we know and love. Fights with armed gangsters and avoiding snipers will tend to bring folks together. And by the end, Holmes has offered Watson a place to stay at his apartment on Baker Street. From his contact in the NYPD, Leslie Strood, to his B Street Irregulars, to his brother Mike, this is definitely our Holmes. Watson's toughness as an ex-soldier who might maybe miss the battlefield more than he'll admit is front and center. It's a really excellent adaptation. I'm looking forward to starting the second volume, which includes stories written by several guest authors, including Lindsay Fay. In other Holmesian comic book news, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Mycroft Holmes novel is getting a follow-up, in graphic novel form. Titan is slated to publish a five-issue series, Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbook, beginning in August, with a trade paperback edition scheduled to publish next March. From the press releases and previews, it looks like Anna Waterhouse, Abdul-Jabbar's co-author for the novel, is not involved with the comic series. The teaser reads, Basketball legend, novelist, and superstar polymath Kareem Abdul-Jabbar brings his take on Sherlock Holmes's older brother to comics at last. An all-new adventure set in the world of the best-selling Mycroft Holmes novel, The Apocalypse Handbook, sees the diffident, brilliant Mycroft pulled into a globe-spanning adventure at the behest of Queen Victoria and a secret organization at the heart of the British government. A madman is on the loose with civilization-destroying weapons, each 200 years in advance of the status quo. Can the smartest man in England set aside his idle, womanizing ways for long enough to track down the foe that may be his match? Okay, idle sounds like a fair description of the Mycroft we know and love, but womanizing? I am intrigued. I may have to pay a visit to my local comic shop. But first, it's off to Orlando for the ALA conference and meeting up with the sub-librarians. That's all I have for this month, so until next time, I bid you goodbye. listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at 
thistangleskein.com. I can be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Reviews and star ratings on iTunes are always appreciated.